Certainly appreciate our, uh, our musicians and our choir. Jody, thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's awesome to be here. You know, uh, when you hold revivals nowadays, that means you preach for two or three days. And uh, there's always some elderly person, that's somebody older than me, Fewer, fewer in number each year. But anyway, there's always somebody who well, I remember back when. And uh, I, I was talking to uh, a guy recently, and he asked me about a Reverend McConnell who was in our area years and years ago in the 30s. He was in, our, in the coal mining uh, area there in the Holston Conference. And uh, Reverend McConnell um, had several children, one of them, one of them was one of the founders of a drug called Tylenol. And another one was superintendent of schools in, uh, in Chattanooga. And just a great family. And my mother used to tell stories about this preacher and, and those long revivals they'd have and how God would move in the church. Uh, she said that... Uh, there was one guy that uh, a local, I, I may have shared this with, I shared this with somebody, there was a local reprobate really that, uh, that everybody had been praying for and, uh, and in our church uh, one Sunday morning and the place was packed out back then, uh, everybody went to church. In fact, my mother, my mother uh, saw my dad for the first time uh, at the Methodist Church, they were Presbyterians, and they always walked to church. And that day, they couldn't walk to church because there was two feet of snow on the ground. So they walked down to our church that was closer to them. And uh, I said, was anybody there? And she said, well, it was full. I said, there's two feet of snow, and it, and it was full? She said, yes. So everybody went to church back then. And one Sunday morning, and um, this was, as I said, in the mid-30s, mid and Reverend McConnell had married my parents. And uh, one Sunday morning, this, this local uh, guy that had a reputation, and everybody had prayed for him for years, and no one expected a whole lot, but they prayed for him. He was kind of like, he was the guy that they always added. Oh, yeah, pray for John. Oh, yeah, pray for John. John who? And everybody knew, everybody kind of knew. But uh, one Sunday morning, Reverend McConnell gave the altar call, and old John was in the back. Most people didn't see him back there. And he got up, and he came down the aisle, and, and Miss McConnell always sat over here. And, and back then, they, they wore, the women wore turtle shell hats. Does anybody remember turtle shell hats? You know, they'll probably be in style pretty soon, but, but the turtle shells, they might come on. They might remember, kind of like a... A beret of some kind, and uh, she, uh, when she saw him come down the aisle, she was a very emotional person. She jumped up and said, "Woo!" You know, she let out that hallelujah, and 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 she reached up and she grabbed that turtle shell hat and tore it off her head. And back then, uh, women wore pins; they pin those hats to their hair, you know, and and their hair was. Uh, Usually pretty long, and they 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 pin the they pin that there. And she reached up and 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 ripped that thing off her head. I'm sure there were fatalities around her seat from those flying pins. And she she went woo and gave that hat a a fling across the 
across the room, and, and uh, I always said that was the first Frisbee. As that, that Mom said that thing went sailing across the room. We knew revival had broken out. And, and there's different ways you, you can tell revival, I guess. I, back home uh, in later years, they, they'd know that revival was close because, well, Joe's at the altar again. You know, wow, something must be happening. Joe's at the altar again, you know, that type of thing. But Reverend McConnell, uh, what an awesome, awesome individual. And, and uh, I was just sitting there, I was just thinking about him. And I, I don't know why, it's just... Uh, I guess this long week, and uh, usually you'll preach for four days, you know, and, and here we are. You go a week, of course, Tom's used to that, and, and I, I'm, I'm retired, you know, and, and so I enjoy that. But um, Reverend McConnell also served a church in, in a place called Rhoda, and Rhoda was uh, in the backwoods. I, I live on the, on, on the backwoods, uh, the back of things, kind of speak, Rhoda was on the flip side of nowhere. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful people. Let's share that today. But Reverend McConnell said, asked the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, company uh, superintendent, he said, uh, he said, I want you to quit taking money out of the miners' pay to pay me. He said, I want them to pay if they want to. If you want to give something, that's great, but don't take any more money. And what they did back then, they took a little bit of money out of everybody's check to pay the preacher. Man, that'd raise a, uh, that, that'd raise a, a fracas of some kind today, wouldn't it? Uh, anyway, um, and, and the church was in the theater, which was part of the company store and the theater and three or four little buildings. Every little coal camp had one of those. And they met in the... Uh, they met in the theater, and Reverend McConnell asked the superintendent, he said, uh, no more taking my money out of the checks. And secondly, I want you to build me a church. And the superintendent said, I can't build you a church. He said, yes, you can. Build me a church. And uh, he said, I'm not going to do that. And he said, yes, you are. Build me a church. So they built him a church. And, and it's still there today. My, my oldest brother has held revivals in that church at Rhoda Church, Rhoda Methodist Church. And, and uh, so they had a revival. When they, when they got in the church, they had a revival. And it was just an incredible thing. Uh, God began to move. And it went, you know, it went a week and two and three. And it went several weeks. And then finally, finally they said, you know, the, that, that we, we just uh, quit having the revival. You know, I don't know how that, because that, things... <clears throat> continued to happen. But what was so funny, <clears throat> they decided to have a baptizing. Several had been saved. And, and the, uh, the creek that ran through Rhoda, it ran black during the week because they washed the coal up in the mountains as they would bring it out of the mine there. They washed the coal and the creek would run black. And then they'd be off for the weekend and so when they off for the weekend, by Sunday afternoon, the creek was pretty clear. So they decided they'd have a baptizing service on uh, Sunday afternoon in this little coal camp. And uh, they baptized over 300. And, and uh, his son, Reverend McConnell's son, the, the school superintendent, uh, told me that story. And I just thought, wow, 
Don't we need that revival today in America? Goodness gracious, do it again, Lord. Do it again. I mean, I, I know some folks that probably put on those, those, uh, those uh, frisbees and uh, sling them across the stage, wouldn't they? Or across the sanctuary. Uh, years ago in World War II, um, they had an invasion across uh, the English Channel, and, and you know it as we call it Normandy and the different beaches there. But um, a lot of people died there at Normandy and that northern France area, and a lot of folks died. And um, when they finally took the, the beach there, the war wasn't over. You know, but they had established a beachhead. And from that beachhead, they would move across Europe. And, and on that European theater there, that, that, that's, that was the beginning on, the, on that beachhead. When they established the beachhead, they began to move forward in victory. They had a place. They had a place. And, and from there, they went forth. And, and, and city after city began to fall, you know. And, and just through the countryside, uh, they began to, quote, win the war. Years before that, at a place called Calvary, God established a beachhead. As Jesus died for us, he established a beachhead. And it wasn't that, that when Calvary was, was quote, done that, that dark Friday, and then we had the great resurrection on that third day, it wasn't that the war was over, but the beachhead had been established. And, and, and when things began to flow out from Calvary, even today, God begins to move. He moves. When I was in seminary, I had a professor named George Turner. Has anybody ever heard of George Turner? If you ever have, he's quite a guy, wasn't he? And he was an old Harvard graduate. And, and Dr. Turner, he expected you to work hard. He said, uh, he said, I graduated from Harvard, and we worked hard up there, but nothing like we're going to work here at Asbury. And, and uh, he took great pride in, in his work. And I remember I took a book of Romans a study that he, he offered one summer, and, and uh, he, he wrote the book. And so he, he expected us to know the book as well as he did. And, and uh, during a four-week term there, wasn't quite four weeks, I wrote, wrote 11 or 12 term papers. And, and uh, it's a long story in those things, but uh, he, he was just a brilliant man and a godly man. <clears throat> and I was in his class on John one semester, and uh, one day he came in and he said this. He said, today I'm going to do something I've never done. Today... I'm going to wash somebody's feet. And uh, Dr. Turner, there was one guy in the class that, that it was obvious that Dr. Turner didn't care for him. His name was Charlie. Remember Charlie? Everybody's got a Charlie, right? Charlie, uh, Charlie was kind of a hippie. Wore sandals like, like Tom 
did last night. Uh, wear sandals. And, <laughs> and, and Charlie, Charlie had this long, thick, long, dark hair, and he'd walk. You just expected the that uh, most, his, his usual clothes was robes. You just believed that. And, and, and when he'd walk down the hall, you, you thought, it's Charlie's feet touching the ground. You know, that, that Charlie was just a godly looking figure. And, and he had this long hair and these sandals. And, and uh, Dr. Turner was not a hippie in any way. I mean, you could tell he did not like Charlie. So that day he gets up and he says, I want to do something today that I've never done before. <laughs> he said, I, I want to wash somebody's feet. And then he volunteers. And before he could get his breath out, Charlie jumped up. And you could see the color kind of drain from Dr. Turner's face. And, and uh, he said, well, okay, Charlie, come on up. And the place is full. And, and Charlie comes up and uh, he sits facing, facing the wall and Dr. Turner was facing us. So uh, Charlie, he said, sit down here, Charlie. And Charlie sat down, and Dr. Turner knelt, he knelt there, and, and uh, he leaned over, and he took those, those sandals, those hated sandals off that man's feet. And, and then he, he, uh, he, he took, uh, he took uh, one foot at a time, and he began to wash his feet. And he felt something on his bald head and he looked up, he looked up, and tears were flowing down Charlie's face and falling on his, his bald head. And, and Dr. Turner got up, and they embraced and were close friends after that. And, and uh, that was the first time I'd ever really... You know, at our church, we really didn't do foot washing back then, and uh, um, that I recall anyway. But there was something about that. I, th I thought about that years later, and, and in my own experience with that, I saw that, uh, I saw that, that, that the holiness was there. It was a holy moment, and there was power there, that it wasn't something that you, that you made up or, or conjured up or whatever that that uh, uh, there, there was a presence of God in, the, in that situation. And um, I think we'll see. And if you, you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to uh, Ezekiel 22. And um, I want to read something for you. Ezekiel 22. I want to read one verse. And I've got some notes here with me I want to share with you. But um, listen to this scripture, Ezekiel 22. I was reading this, it just kind of jumped off the page and, and uh, I, I share it with you. In Ezekiel 22 and verse 26, uh, the, the sins had really come up before the Lord and the Lord was, he said this, he said, what sins are you talking about? And you know, we talk a lot about that, but I want to move on. I want to move quickly to I, I know that, that you've been here all week. Some of you are getting tired. You know, I can tell that. But uh, that's okay. God will rejuvenate us. Listen to this. This is verse 26. The Lord says, he says, Your priests have violated my laws and defiled my holy things. 
You see that? To them, this is the New Living Translation I'm reading from. To them, there is no difference between what is holy and what is not. And God pronounced judgment, really, uh, against Israel here uh, through Ezekiel because uh, it says there, you've defiled my holy things. Now, the Hebrew word for defile, uh, uh, some of your versions may say profane. You know, it may say uh, uh, um, make, uh, make ordinary, normalize. That they've taken the holy things of God and they've made them ordinary. You know, they didn't see that as a real movement or, or a real act of God. They made them ordinary. They made them normal. And, and uh, today we're seeing so much of that. We, we do anything to attract, to get people in church, you know. And, and, and sometimes I, I, I'm finding when you talk to people, you think, are you defiling the holy things? Are you normalizing? And the Hebrew word there for defile, again, a profane, means can mean also wound, that uh, in this scripture, by normalizing God, we wound his name, we wound his power. You with me? Now plug in, let me share just a few things about that. Uh, one is this, this quote from T.S. Eliot, I, I, uh, I really like, I, I have this written in my Bible, really. But says, T.S. Eliot said, the greatest proof of Christianity for others the greatest proof of Christianity for others is not how far a man can legally or logically rather analyze his reasons for believing, but how far in practice he will stake his life on what he believes. Goodness gracious. Isn't that a powerful thing? That uh, during the Civil War, uh, when, when they'd go through, uh, we used to serve a church that was actually on the border and part of the battlefield uh, there at Chickamauga. And, uh, and it stretched into on Highway 27 to a place called uh, uh, Fort Oglethorpe. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower was there and others would serve in that fort. But, but they found that when they'd go through after those great battles like Gettysburg and different ones, when they'd go in after, after the battle was over and clean up the mess, pick up the bodies, uh, tend to the wounded. And they found that a lot of the rifles that would be beside the dead or, or there with the, with the soldiers had never been fired. Isn't that interesting? Uh, they just couldn't quite pull the trigger. And, and, and I think today, you know, we, in, in our witness, for some of us, we can't quite pull the trigger. And uh, I want to show you some things about holiness when thinking about how we normalize. Uh, years ago, I was, uh, uh, we were building a new church in Alcoa, Tennessee, and so we were going around, we're building a new sanctuary, and we're going around looking at people's churches. And, and we went in this Baptist church, and uh, as I'm walking down the hall in this Baptist church, we went downstairs at white marble floors. I've never seen anything like that. But, but anyway, uh, I'm walking down this, down this hallway, there's white marble floors, walking down this hallway, and they had pictures. They had pictures of all the former pastors there on the wall. Um, they never would do that for me. I never understood that, you know. But anyway, uh, 
But they had these pictures, and I'd go by and they'd say, you know, like that. Oh, there's, there's, uh, there's Tom Atkins. I love Tom, you know. That's Tom Keene. Wow, wow. You know, and, and you know, different, different ones there. That, that. And it, but one picture underneath said Reverend Normal. And I said, God forbid the day that they would put Reverend Normal under my picture. You know that? That we're not normal. I mean, look around. Do we look normal? Do we look normal? No, we're not normal. We're God's people. And, and that's why I would call this, this sermon peculiarity, okay? But look at the scripture. Now, this is in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm just going to mention scripture. I'm going to read, and I'm going to go through some things that I've got to want to share with you. And then we'll go eat lunch. But in 1 Peter 2 and 9, you know this. And this is the King James. But ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that awesome that we are a chosen, we are a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation. And sometimes we don't quite feel that way. George Barna said this, George Barna, the pollster, the Christian pollster, I guess we'd call him, like Gallup or whatever, but... The notion of personal holiness. The notion of personal holiness has slipped out of the consciousness of the vast majority of Christians. Think about that. Only one out of every three, and this was written probably, uh, the book was probably published about six or eight years ago. Only one out of every three, 35%, only one out of every three Christians believe that God expects people to become holy. The results are, uh, portray a body of Christians. Uh, the results uh, portray a body of Christians who attend church and read the Bible, but do not understand the concept or significance of holiness. Do not personally desire to be holy, and therefore do little, if anything, to pursue it. They do little, if anything, to pursue being like Jesus. Wow. I was talking to a young lady one time who had been out of church for two or three years. I'd been at that church for several years. So I remember when she used to come and I ran into her and I said, how come you don't come to church anymore? Your, your place is empty. Where, where have you been? And she made this comment and I wrote it down. She said, why is it that so many Christians make such lousy human beings? Isn't that interesting? And, uh, and then she shared about things, not, not so much dealing with holiness, but things that, that were dealing with, with a lifestyle that certainly didn't speak of holiness. So let me share just a few things that God expects of us. One thing is God expects me to be holy in all I do. The scripture reads like this, and this is uh, uh, 1 Peter 1. Just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. That doesn't sound like a suggestion there, does it? Be holy because I am holy. He expects it. It's not just a church thing. Someone said one time, um, they said that Christianity is not a way of doing certain things. Christianity is a certain way of doing everything. And, and that's a lot of truth. I think G.K. Chesterton said that, or Mary Crowley. 
one of the others, but, but uh, one of those. But, but anyway, that Christianity is not a way of doing certain things like Sunday things or whatever, but it's a certain way of doing everything. It all affect every part, every part uh, of our lives. Be holy because I am holy. Chuck Colson, you remember him? Chuck Colson was a hatchet man. They called him a hatchet man for, for President Nixon. He made this comment. He said, holiness is the everyday business of every Christian. It evidences itself in the decisions we make and the things we do, hour by hour, day by day, that God expects everything we do, everything we speak, to speak of holiness. John Wesley spoke of holiness of heart and life, that it all affects everything we do. And secondly, first of all, he expects me to be holy in all I do. And the second thing I thought about was that God saved me for the purpose of living a holy life. Um, the scripture says in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. You remember, um, remember I shared about Jack and, and, and how Jack, uh, how God changed his life and, and people couldn't believe the change in Jack's life and, and, and what was happening to Jack. So I share another uh, friend that uh, is a very close friend of mine named Bill. Bill Shelton, when, when we first moved to Alcoa in 1995, Bill Shelton, uh, he and his family, his wife and, and three kids, he had a, a two daughters and a son, and uh, just the best people in the world, it seemed. And, and uh, they, they started coming to Alcoa before we got there, so we certainly didn't draw them. They came like in uh, May or so, April or May, and we got there in June. And then in the fall, in the fall, and probably October, November, they came to me and they said, we want to join the church. I said, well, okay, good. So I took them into the church and, I, and part of the, the installation in the Methodist church of receiving is will you support the church with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, your witness. And, and uh, so there's this family up there, a nice family. And uh, uh, husband, wife, three kids, Bill was a... Uh, uh, a counselor at the University of Tennessee Hospital, just brilliant, brilliant guy. And, and his wife, uh, just, they're just tremendous family. And they joined the church, and I didn't see Bill anymore. So it got up into early December, and I was talking to his wife one day, and I said, by the way, Sherry, uh, where's Bill? And she said, well, Joe, Bill didn't come to church every Sunday. And I said, he doesn't? She said, well, no. Like nobody does, you know. I said, uh, he stood up in front of the church and told us he'd, he'd be here. She said, what do you mean? I said, I heard him do it. I said, I can bring a lot of witnesses. He stood before the church and said, I'll support this church with my attendance. I said, you tell him I expect him to be here. He doesn't miss the University of Tennessee ball games. And God knows we got a better show than they do. You know that. And we got a better record than they do. And, and he'd sit up in the stands every Saturday with his buddies. Rain, snow, sleet, hell, or dark of night. He's there rooting for the Big Orange. And now the Big Orange, the Big Orange country, has taken up stake and moved to South Carolina. And they call him Clemson. But anyway, that's another story. But, but anyway... 
I said, you, you tell him I expect him to be here. He told me to be here. And she didn't know what to say. And so she walked, and, and then as she's walking off, I said, by the way, Shay, also be sure and tell him this. Tell him we're starting a new Bible study in January called The Mind of Christ, and I expect to see him there. And she said, well, okay. She knew we were going to come to a Bible study, so she left. That Bible study that night, we had about, I think we had like 60 or, or 80 show up for that Bible study, which is not a bad crowd. And, and, and I, I saw that, and I said, Lord, show me what to do here, because there was Bill. And, and I said, well, let's, let's number off here. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three. And now all the ones, you know, you're over here, the twos are over here, and the threes are back here. Those are going to be your small groups. And I prayed the whole time that Bill would get in a group that could challenge him. So he ended up with a professor from University of Tennessee, Emmett Rawls. He ended up with a, with a kid that would go to Asbury Seminary and graduate from there, uh, Jason, and, and three or four others. I mean, they were all just, God set him up. He set him up. He set up George Turner. He set up Bill Sheldon. By the end of that thing, Bill, his life was changed. He went from there, and, and the years that followed, I'll tell you this real quick. In the years that followed, uh, the next year I said, uh, well, by spring, I, I said, when I got in the nominations uh, meetings, I said, I want Bill as my lay leader. They said, Joe, he's a new member. You don't do that. I said, I do. I want Bill as my lay leader. I said, he's, he's on fire. I want and so they, they reluctantly said, okay. He was there for three or four years as my lay leader. I mean, it was incredible what that guy did. He, he made me look good, really good. I, I, <laughs> I mean, attendance, things went crazy. And Bill had a lot to do with that. He really did. And, and anyway... And then he came to me one day and he said, I thought, could you get me a part-time church? I said, I said, sure thing, Bill. And, and I talked to the DS, got him a, a, a part-time church. Thing exploded. And then I made him my associate. I went to the district superintendent. I said, I want Bill as my associate. She said, he's a local pastor. I said, I don't care. You told us to think out of the box. I want Bill as my associate and put him in a position, and we attacked the whole school system. Where our church is, within a 200 yards, is a whole school system of that area. We went in there and went after those people, Bill. And then the DS said, will you take another church as kind of a satellite church? And uh, I said, yeah. So I stood up one Sunday morning, Bill and I talked about it. I said, Bill, can you, you pastor that church. If you don't want to do it, we'll not do this. He said, no, I'll do that. And so I stood up and I said, if anybody wants to go to Bill, Bill needs help. I said, you hard workers who are dedicated to the work of the Lord, I want you to go with Bill to that church. It's four miles down the road, and, and they need something to happen. But if you're not going to work, if you're just transferring over, forget it. We want the best people in this church to go with him. And I said, I want you to commit for at least two years. And they did. There was probably a 20 or 30 that went with him. And uh, he developed Spanish ministry. And I, I mean, it was incredible. It, it was awesome what Bill did because God got a hold of him. And sometimes we forget that. 
We forget, we normalize God. We don't want him to look bad, so we don't, we don't dream big. We don't speak forth the big things of the Word of God. I had a woman come to me and said, uh, do you think God uh, cares about little things? This was recently. And I just finished a, a, a sermon a week before and called it little, small things. And uh, she said, do you really think God cares about small things? I said, tell me what would be large to him. What can he handle? What can he handle? Do you ever look back and see what God has done in and, and one of your crazy wild moments that, that you begin to see God who, for who he really is and you begin to step fo forward in almost foolish looking faith and God blessed and you look back at it and you say, I can't believe I did that. I can't, I can't. Would you do that again? Would you do that again? Holiness. He saved me for the purpose of living a holy life. And is my life distinctly different or just like unbelievers? What sets you apart? Do people know you're not a secret agent for God, are you? He didn't have secret agents. That's not in. And thirdly, holy living is living in the reality of who I am in Christ. And, uh, um, you know, I could share about, uh, I, I could share about, uh, uh, um, Harrison Ford, right? Remember, I, I told you that story the first night, I think, about how, how the clerk at the polo shop said, do you know who you are? You remember that? We've got to know who we are. The scripture says this, uh, in this Hebrews 10, 10, we've been set apart as holy because Jesus did what God wanted him to do by sacrificing his body once and for all, that we have a beachhead. And his name is Jesus. Wow. And it's not about do's and don'ts. It's about fruit and evidence. It's about bearing fruit with your life. That's what we're talking about. First Peter 1 and verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Because you're a new person. You're a new person. You understand that? that, that you're not the same person you used to be, and we're all excited about that. <laughs> no, but, but we're new people. Uh, when we lived in Alcoa, we had this guy, uh, had this guy named Bill Doctor, and, and Bill, uh, Bill, his business was uh, he rewired, he did all the wiring. He didn't just rewire; he wired usually uh, all the McDonald's restaurants, and he had the uh, contract on all the McDonald's restaurants between Pittsburgh and Jacksonville. He was busy. He had crews and they were always going somewhere. He got one special contract to rewire uh, the, the, the uh, menus in, in the uh, city of Chicago. I mean, the guy was a busy guy and, and it was just, I asked him a question though. Here's what I want to say. I asked him a question one day when we lived in, uh, when we lived, we lived in Alcoa, but this was about Kingsport, Tennessee. In Kingsport, Tennessee, near where I'm from, they, 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 they took a McDonald's restaurant that was fairly new and they tore it down and dug up the parking lot. I mean, when you looked at this restaurant, where the restaurant was, all you saw was this dug up field. Have you ever seen this? 
They, they tear down the restaurant, then they dig it up. And they did it in two particular McDonald's restaurants in Kingsport. And I asked Bill, and now I said, Bill, you know what, did, did you do that? And he said, yeah, we did that. I said, why, why would you tear down a building like that? A, a perfectly sound building. I mean, it was it fairly new. Why would you do that? And, and dig it up, dig up the parking lot and then build something that, that's not bigger so much, but why did you do that? He said this. He said, the old buildings, the old buildings are not built for the new stuff. And I thought about, what is it, Matthew 9? It's, you can't put new wine in the old bags, right? That... Uh, um, it'll ferment and you got a mess. He said, he said the stuff that, that when, when you get the new stuff, you have to tear the building down and build it so it can accommodate what you want to do. That's what God does with us, man. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus, that he tears us down, digs us up, digs us up, and, and then he can put that new stuff. He can put that new life. He can... He can put that joy and that peace. He can put all that stuff in this new guy. You may look the same, but you're not the same. That, will that preach, John? Yes, it will. And, and believe me, the people around you, they're thrilled what God is doing uh, in your life. But uh, you think about that, um, that he digs us up and makes us new. Now, let me, let me I got I to close this thing. We got to go. Okay, okay. We're about that. So ask yourself these questions. I, I, I jot down a few things here. Ask yourself these questions. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, it says, In your heart set, a, set Christ apart as holy and acknowledge him as Lord. So I set him apart. I allow him to be my Lord. He's my kurios in the Greek. He's my Lord. He's my boss. I'm under new ownership. Isn't that awesome? Now ask yourself these questions. <laughs> um, do you ever use God to run from God? You ever use God to run from God? What I'm, what I'm saying there, you busy yourself in godly church activities so you don't have to do what God's really calling you to do. He may be telling you to go into a rough area and minister in an area. He may, he may have, a new, uh, have you involved in some kind of home ministry. And you really, you know, you really don't want to do that. You don't like the so-and-so, the Smiths and the Joneses. And you, you don't want to, so you, you, busy, hey, preacher, I'm already working the softball teams, you know, uh, that, that you, you busy yourself doing God's work to keep from doing God's work. And do I do God's work to satisfy me, not him? Who are we trying to please here? You know, you, you with me? Getting things done is high priority in our Western culture, if you think about it. And, and so we, uh, we just busy ourselves doing something. Do I do things in, the name, in his name that he never asked me to do? This is for you, God. I'm doing this for you. Yeah, sure you are. You know, you know what I'm saying? You, you felt like that. Are my prayers really about God doing my will? Well, at least I pray. Not my will, but thine be done, right? You know what I'm saying? Do I, do I demonstrate Christian behavior uh, so people will think well of me. I want to be seen, you know. 
Think about that. Now, what's obstacles? I'm going to close this and bring this thing. What obstacles do we face in living a holy life? First of all, um, loss of focus. You know, you get so involved in, in life, you, you lose your focus. A.W. Tozier said this, As Christians, we have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as natural and expected. We tolerate the world's lifestyle. That's what we do. We tolerate the world's lifestyle. We lose our focus. It just feels natural, goodness. Well, everybody does it, Joe. Come on, come on. You know, they say the great obstacle to revival is distraction. We need to be focused. Secondly, we lower the bar. We compartmentalize. Well, I got my church life. I'm busy here, and I got my business life. You know, I've got, I've got to do these things. We compartmentalize. We separate things. Well, again, as a quote I mentioned a while ago, that, that Christianity is not a, a way of doing certain things, compartmentalized, but it's a certain way of doing everything. And then thirdly, uh, we conform to the culture I live in. And I got this out of Christianity Today magazine, this quote, and this was years ago. Recent polls show that many evangelical Christians march in moral lockstep with mainstream American culture and practices of divorce, extramarital sex, uh, spouse abuse, porn, materialism, racism, and, and many others that um, we let the world tell us how to live. First Peter 2 and verse 11, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. I have a friend in, uh, I, I have a friend in, in Radford, Virginia, and, and uh, um, he, um, one night in the winter, one night in the winter, he, um, goodness, I was looking for my, yeah. One night in the winter, they had a fire. He had a garage, and he was a young guy, and he had this garage. He'd built this new garage, and, and he had this big fire, and, and, and it's kind of a flash fire, and it, and it just, caught everything on fire. It must have been the gas type thing. And, and, and it burned his, his garage. It's in the middle of the window. Burned to the ground. Burned to the ground. And uh, um, so, so I'm trying to remember. Yeah. His, his garage burned to the ground because the water froze. And so when the fire was finally put out and it was just a smoldering ash, He's standing there, he's looking at it, and, and people are leaving. And it's a sad thing. It's a sad, he put his whole life into that. And he thought, goodness. And he, and he went to a Methodist church, Central Methodist Church in Radford, and it broke their hearts. So before he went home, he went to someone's house and got, got some paint, and he painted on, on this garage door what was the left of one of the garage doors. He's, he wrote, God is still good. And there, there was a pediatrician the next morning. It's my understanding he's going to work or something, and he saw that. And it changed his life. And that, that boy would rebuild that garage greater than ever. But when the pediatrician saw the impact, he thought that, that boy lost everything he had and he left us that message that God is still good. Leonardo da Vinci was finishing up a masterpiece and um, 
you know, and, and, and he was painting this masterpiece and he had his students, several students standing around him and he was just finishing up this masterpiece when he turned to this young man and said, you finish it. And he said, I can't do that. He said, yes, you can. He said, will not what I have done inspire you to do your best? Will not what I have done inspire you to do your best? That's what God says to us. He's our inspiration. He's our everything. Look what he has done. And now he's he says, I want you to do. I want to continue, and I want to do it in and through your lives. I want people to see who I am by the way you live. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning, and it's always a joy to, to be in fellowship with you, whether together or alone. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for that beachhead at Calvary established that we might draw life, that we might find healing and wholeness, that, that we might, Father, receive power to live forth a witness that truly becomes a gospel. What you have done for us certainly inspires us to give our best. As we continue in these meetings here, Lord, and, and in the days that follow, challenge us. Remind us of times of fellowship like this and, and teaching. Father, uh, I, I pray that, that you would remind us by your Holy Spirit who we are in you, that we are to be a holy people. We are not normal. We are peculiar, and that's okay. And that you have empowered us by your Holy Spirit to go, go forth. Go forth and change the world. Go into all the world to, to, to shout, to live forth the gospel, Father. I thank you for our time this morning. In the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming today. Thank you.